and streaming on the web since 1996, this is Cinematic Sound. I'm Jason Drury and welcome to another of the continuing series of film, TV and video game composer interviews on Cinematic Sound Radio. Our subject today is Hollywood composer Brian Vanston. Working in Hollywood for over 17 years, Brian has composed scores for a wide range of films, including his intimate score for the dramatic love story Being Rose, starring Sybil Shepherd and James Brolin, which hit US cinemas in January 2019, and the inspirational sports film Crooked Arrows in 2012, starring Brandon Ralph and Gil Birmingham. Other credits include the action thriller Awaken in 2015, the sci-fi original movie Planet of the Sharks in 2016, and the gripping feature Nine Tenths in 2006, for which Brian won the gold medal at the 2007 Park City Film Music Festival for Best Music in a Feature Film. The composer also added additional orchestral underscore for the 20th Century Fox series Angel, as well as the 2003 stage musical Sino. The sensational gothic figure skating musical, which he served as an orchestrator and arranger, as well as composing the score. In 2013, Brian also scored the play Private Dancer for director Bob Degas for the New York stage. In April 2019, for Cinematic Sound Radio, I had the privilege to talk to composer Brian Ranston on Skype about his film music career to date. In the first of this two-part interview, Brian talks about how he started in film scoring, the chance meetings that gave him his first projects, his collaboration with fellow composer Kays Alatraski, and how he completed the score to the film Don't Fade Away in less than one week. And during both parts of the show, you will also be hearing plenty of Brian's wonderful music, which is making him one of the most talked about composers in Hollywood today. Brian Ranston, how did your interest in music start? Well, it started at a very young age. I was in first grade when my mom forced me to take piano lessons and you know she woke me up every morning made me practice the piano and um it was about sixth grade when um i was going into middle school that they had music programs at school my mom wanted me to be a part of that and so there's not much room for a piano player in a middle school band 
And so I had to pick a band instrument or or orchestra or something else. And I ultimately chose trumpet, and trumpet became my main instrument. And so throughout middle school, I had private lessons as a trumpet player and could already read music from my piano days. So music and reading music, I understood at that point. It was just the technique of the trumpet I had to learn. And then that became my main instrument throughout middle school and high school and ultimately college uh, was trumpet. And I, I got pretty good at it. So in high school, my high school marching band toured throughout Australia. It was a pretty big marching band program, actually. I played in a, a few young musician orchestras in the Pasadena area here in Los Angeles that uh, went on some European trips. We played on European radio and the Vienna Music Festival. And then I played in an all-national honor band. I was their first-year trumpet player. And we also did a bunch of tours throughout Europe for a couple summers. So really, by the time I got to college, I done a lot of trumpet, a lot of traveling, playing with trumpet. You know, that's how I got into music. I was always a fan of film scoring from an early age. It was just being a fan of music and movies. And that was kind of what my life became. So I like to tell the story that my three favorite film scores at the time were Willow, Crawl, and The Rocketeer. I liked the music, but I didn't really even notice who scored those films. And in one day, I collected the soundtracks of those, and and they all said James Horner. And I just said, I must love James Horner, and I had to have everything James Horner. And so throughout the rest of high school, and and especially into college, I became a James Horner fan where I had to collect everything that he did on audio recording, even bootleg audio recordings, you know, and Things like the Captain EO ride at Disneyland that was never commercially released, but somehow there was a bootleg of it on eBay. And I just started collecting soundtracks and became a huge fan of soundtracks. I would rescore scenes in movies on my own, a VHS player and an old rolling keyboard. And that was just kind of how I started getting into music and film scoring and, and all that stuff. You started training as a doctor before turning to music as a career. When did you decide to make the change in career paths? Well, you know, I actually have a degree in biochemistry. So so I thought I wanted to be a doctor. At the time, a pediatrician would have been what I would have picked. I love the science of it. I love helping people. Yeah, I worked on a breast cancer research study for my senior thesis in college. I worked for a neurologist for many years. I was a nationally certified EMT, emergency medical technician here in the States. And all this was in attempt to bulk up my resume to go to med school. I took the MCAT test. I was interviewing for medical schools and I just decided I had that epiphany that music was what my passion was. I mean, I really loved helping people, but I didn't want to be a 50, 60 year old in the future looking back on my life with regrets. What if I had only pursued music? And ultimately, that's really what it was. And so after my biochemistry degree in college, I went back into music formally. So I had always been playing it. I was always in groups performing it. I had all the experience I needed except the actual degree of music because I was doing that biochemistry thing. But, but eventually music won out. Also coming to the realization that most people in Hollywood or the entertainment industry in general doesn't just magically pop out movies or music or whatever. It's just regular people doing this job and they just decide to do it. 
They just decide to pursue it. And once I came to that realization that these people are just like us, they have faults, they get up every day, they have their morning tea, you know, they, they do everything pretty much the same. They just happen to choose this is what they wanted to make their career. Once I realized that that was possible, then I decided I wanted to pursue this and see what happens. Why did you turn to film schooling? Just being a film music fan. It's awfully hard to get your music performed and listened to anyway, right? And the concert music composers in general, and I still write stuff for the concert stage. I particularly like wind band. I think wind band is a very interesting medium to not have strings. And there's a lot of unique colors you can do with the wind band ensemble. You spend a lot of time and a lot of efforts writing a piece and you get a wind band, let's say, or orchestra to perform it. And you move a couple hundred people in an audience somewhere in a concert hall and that's it. And when you do something for film or TV or media, you get to have your music heard and listened to and you get to move millions of people around the world really and so especially as our world becomes much smaller with you know media being so easily accessible on the internet and streaming and and everything so to me storytelling was also interesting telling the story of the movie basically through music is an approach that i use in approaching film scores so, so all of that was just much more interesting to me than writing a piece that a handful of people in a concert hall would experience and then i'd have to work really hard trying to get that performed again how did you get your first film score assignment it was a film outside of usc called nine tenths this is a business of relationships and that was always told to me and you don't really understand it until you get into it and then you realize that one job leads to the next one relationship usually leads to another it's a crazy story that i have a cousin that lived in texas who had a neighbor who they went to church with and the neighbor name was muriel muriel mcguire if i remember correctly my cousin said you know i have a cousin out there in los angeles who is pursuing just graduated from usc's film scoring program and is pursuing scoring movies and muriel said oh my daughter's out there in los angeles and doing movies as well oh we should get them to talk okay so flash forward a few weeks and i get a random call on the phone from muriel mcguire the older mother of michelle mcguire and muriel said would you be willing to speak with my daughter about her film project and i said absolutely sure i mean she told me the connection of my cousin and I was very grateful. So another week went by. I got a call from actually Michelle McGuire, and I could tell that Michelle was kind of doing her mom a favor. You know, her mom said, "You got to call this guy." And okay, so she probably she probably got on the phone and said, "Okay, I'll yes, mom, I will call Brian." So she talked to me on the phone. She was very nice. She said she was working on a project. I didn't know any details of the project. She didn't even tell me the name of it, so I couldn't even look it up. But I. I was just so floored to get a call from somebody. I was fresh out of school. She had me send in a demo reel. I did that, and that was it. Three months later, I, I still hadn't heard from them, and I figured that opportunity was not going to happen, and that's that was normal. A lot of opportunities just never happen or fall through. And lo and behold, one day I got a call on my phone leaving a message that said, Hi, Brian, this is Bob Degas. I'm the director of the film Nine Tenths. And you spoke with my wife, Michelle, many months ago. And he said he had my demo. He had been listening to it for many months, and he really liked it. And he wanted to know if I was still interested in scoring their film. And I said, 
Absolutely. I, I met with him. He invited me to a little screening at Panavision at the time and showed me the film, and I loved it. And I wasn't the only composer he was talking to. There were a couple other composers he was still doing his due diligence. But ultimately, we hit it off, and he hired me. So now I'm learning the name of the film. I'm learning people involved. Bob was the producer of Pleasantville. Bob worked as the executive at New Line Cinema. Bob was mostly a producer, and this was his first film that he was directing. And the last composer he had worked with before this project was Randy Newman. And so, lo and behold, if you really look back on those series of events, you could never predict that. You could never predict that the old, nice woman, Muriel McGuire, lived across the street from my cousin in Texas, convinced her daughter to call me in Los Angeles, who happened to be married to Bob Degas, who was the director of this film. And I think it's just an example of how this is a business of relationships and things come out from nowhere that you just don't see and you have to follow those opportunities and then things happen. I can trace almost every project I've done since back to that film or a relationship I got from that film or someone I was introduced to as a result of scoring that film. And it goes from there.
was music from the 2006 thriller Nine Tenths, directed by Bob Degas and starring Gabriel Anwar and Henry Ian Kuzik, with original music composed by my guest today, Brian Ranston. My name is Jason Drury. Now, Brian, at this point I want to refer you back to an interview you did on a featurette where you mentioned a meeting with the great Basil Polidorus and in that meeting he gave you some advice in fact, you should be creating relationships with the directors of tomorrow rather than the directors of today. Absolutely. You're never going to break into the business of today. The business of today has established relationships between directors and composers and producers and the people they trust. And it's really hard to build trust in a short amount of time. That that happens over a long amount of time. And so you have to think about breaking into the business of tomorrow and who are tomorrow's directors and tomorrow's producers, showrunners, game developers, all that stuff. And you know, in this particular case, I was very fortunate because Bob was an established producer of many years. He was an executive at New Line Cinema. But as a director, he was a new director. So for him, it was a career shift and he was starting over again, believe it or not. And as a result, his experience allowed him to get a a really cool film made, but he was still now new and he did not have an established composer relationship. And so that was the future for him at the time. How well did you get to know Basil Polidoris? I did not know him well. I was so young at the time, and they had all these CD signings everywhere, and I met him a couple times at CD signings, and he was a very nice gentleman, even kind of remembered you from the last time I was there at a CD signing. You know, it's like, oh, yeah. And this was a CD signing, I believe, for Starship Troopers. So I have, my, I have the Starship Troopers soundtrack signed and the CD signed and everything by him. Um, I think even I even had the poster at the time, and he signed that. And it's it's in talking with him at those events. And this was uh, before I went to USC as well. So it was kind of leading up to, you know, I decided to make this change, but I hadn't yet really started working in the industry. And I asked him for, for advice, and that was the thing he told me, and that's, it just stuck with me. So I really wish 
I was a little further in my career at the time, instead of wasting <laughs> those five years on biochemistry, maybe I would have gotten the opportunity to actually work with him or something. But unfortunately, my interactions with him were much more superficial. But again, that the advice that he gave this young composer with hands out asking, you know, do you have any advice for me was immeasurable. So, and it's stuck with me ever since. Now let's talk about another of your early scores, the 2010 drama Don't Fade Away. Tell us about working on that project. That score, believe it or not, was written in four days. So I, you know, again, this is a relationship story in Los Angeles. I was sitting around and in between projects, I didn't have anything on my plate at the time. And I have a sound designer friend from the same university I went to who's out here doing sound design and mix engineering. And, and she was on this film called Don't Fade Away. And the composer on the film, there was either a misunderstanding or something, but had written a bunch of songs for the film and did not have score. And they were expecting score, but there was there was just confusion. They got to the end and they were mixing things and everybody's like, where's the score? You know, and it was suggested to them, well, take the songs and delete the vocal tracks and just use the instrumentals for the song and music edit them in. And, and my friend Lisa's like, that's not a score. We need something composed. Something that felt like it was somewhat working in the edit bay on the small TV monitors when they got it into the big room mixing on the dub stage. It just felt emotionless and empty. It needed something. It wasn't apparent when they were on headphones in the edit bay. And Lisa gave me a call on a Friday evening about 5 p.m. and said, can you come down to Santa Monica right now? I need you here right now. And I'm like, okay. And luckily, I was at my girlfriend's place in Santa Monica at the time, who, who is now my wife, Heather. And uh, we were going to go out to dinner, and I, we changed plans. And I said, go, go do it. That's fine. So I, I went down, and I met Lisa wherever she told me to go. And she told me the story that I just told you about them needing the score. But the problem was they were already in the middle of their dub. And the dub had one more week to go. So this is Friday. And the following Friday, they had to be done. And the reason is the not only did they have a delivery requirement for their distributor, but the dub stage was going to be taken up by another project. So there was no time to push this down the calendar. And she wanted to know if I could come in and help them with their score needs in less than a week. And I didn't know what it was I could do, but I agreed to meet with them and see what was possible. The director was Luke Kasdan, who was Lawrence Kasdan's nephew. So there's a film family there that, again, relationships are important. And I felt this was a good opportunity to do it. The film had Ryan Quantin in it and Misha Barton and Bo Bridges. So, you know, we're not talking about an independent film that has nobody in it. We're talking about a smaller independent film that had some people in it. And to amass those people and put them in a film, I mean, there's some connections there. And, and I said, okay. So I met with the director and the producer, and they told me what they were looking for. They seemed to think that we only need about 10 minutes of score. And we sat down and I watched the film on that Friday night late and spotted the film really what it would need we were there to about three or four in the morning and it needed much more than 10 minutes so i went home on saturday i took the film with me and i started putting it in my system and doing all the technical things i need to do to break out where cues are going to go and just started writing i hadn't signed a contract i hadn't done anything because there was no time to do that and go back and forth if i was going to finish this 
I needed to work on it and finish it. So all day Saturday, Sunday, I worked on this. Sunday evening, I was pretty much done with cues. Now, I was not writing orchestral cues. So if that's what this needed, there was no way to get this done. Most of the cues were very soundscapey and very atmospheric. And I decided to base the score around piano and a little bit of guitar and something that I could simply produce on a small budget in my own studio. And that was the approach that they wanted. And that's the approach we, we took. Monday, I had the director come back and preview what I did. He really liked what I did. There were some changes that he wanted me to make. And I made those changes Monday night. Tuesday, I had a live guitar player come in and we replaced my MIDI guitar with live guitar on Tuesday. And the director came back Tuesday night to re-listen to everything with the, with the live guitar. And he really liked it. There was one cue at the end of the movie that was orchestral and very different than anything else. And they had a spot in the movie that had three songs in it. And it felt really disjunct to me. It didn't have the cohesion that it, I felt it needed at the end. And it was a big reveal in the film that, to me, was important. And so I actually scored a cue that was very different than the rest of the film to enhance this reveal section. I don't want to give it away if, if people get the opportunity to see it, so I'm being a little cryptic. I, I scored it very orchestrally, and it was all done with samples because there was just no time for a live orchestra. But I played it for the director, and I said, now this is going to be completely different than what you've seen before, than what is in the film now, and that's okay if you don't like it, but I really feel like this works for these reasons. And played it for him, and he absolutely loved it. And they took out the three songs that were in that spot, kind of like a little montage, and used my cue instead at the end. And that was not something he was asking me to do. That was just a, that was me testing the waters and seeing if I could kind of expand his thoughts on his own score a little bit. And that's the cue called Transcend, which is pretty much the last cue in the film. And he approved it Tuesday, and then Wednesday I did all the outputs, and they were still mixing the film. They were at the dub stage every day mixing, and they would go around the score cues because they weren't delivered yet. Wednesday I, dry, I drove the hard drive to Santa Monica and delivered, and then Thursday they went back to where all the score cues were, and they dropped the score cues in, and they remixed those scenes with the score cues all day Thursday into the wee hours of the morning. And Friday they had their final layback for their distributor and everybody else in the Dolby Digital and the surround sound and DTS and all that stuff they were doing. And by Friday evening, it was done. So that's the quickest turnaround I've ever done. And I pretty much did not sleep for those four days. And that's not an exaggeration. I, I don't know how I did it.
That was music from the 2010 drama film Don't Fade Away, composed by my guest today, Brian Ranston. Now, Brian, you have composed in your career so far music for films in many genres. Which genre do you prefer working in? I have a couple. Um, just drama films in general. Anything drama, love story, emotional. I, I tend to be a melody person, a thematic person. And films that lend themselves to that, I really love and enjoy. And big action fantasy, sci-fi type stuff, I love as well. But anything that has big open landscapes and kind of allows you to write thematic music, I'm all in. And that's what I love to do. So if those opportunities come across my plate, I'm probably going to take them extremely seriously because that's going to allow me to really start to put my voice out there in what I like to do. And you dipped your toe into the fantasy genre with the 2016 film Planet of the Sharks, which you produced an exceptional score for what is really an awful film. How did you get to work on Planet of the Sharks? You know, that was a director, Mark Atkins, who I had worked with before. We had done a sci-fi channel, Mockbusters, that they tend to call them, called Battle of Los Angeles. And a composer friend of mine, Kay Zalatrakshi, had a relationship with Mark Atkins and said, you know, we have this Mockbuster Battle of Los Angeles. There's not a lot of money, and I don't really know if I have the time to get through it all, but I think if we tag team and score this together, we can get through it. I said, yes, we did that movie. And that relationship went so well and so smooth that we've now done three films together with Mark. And he comes back to us and pretty much lets us write what we want to write. We, we have a little spotty meeting and he goes away and he trusts us to do what we're doing. So there was another film we did called Awaken. And then this Planet of the Sharks was directed by Mark Atkins as well. And so it was a sci-fi channel movie for their Shark Week promotion that they do. And this was a crappy B-movie, but compared to crappy B-movies, it's one of the better crappy B-movies. The problem with it is that it does take itself a little too seriously, and you're like, you know, the premise is pretty good. It's just the special effects are really crappy, and the acting's... But it was a fun opportunity. One, I, I think I did it really for two reasons. The primary reason is I wanted the opportunity to do a score like that, and I hadn't had a film come across on my plate that would allow me to do something in that genre. Some big orchestral, apocalyptic, add electronics in there. And to me, that was an interesting opportunity. And when you know already you have a sci-fi channel movie that's going to go to air and it's part of Shark Week and it's going to play every year because they play those when Shark Week comes next year for their new movies, they play the old movies over and over again too. So even though the money up front was not going to be very much, you know over the life of this movie, it's going to add to your catalog. It's going to generate some money. So the amount of money you make over time might start to be worth it after 10 years. So there were a couple of reasons to want to do that movie. And of course, the relationship with Mark, you know, if Mark comes asking, we like Mark a lot. And because he allows us to really write what we want to write, it is a joy working with him because he, he trusts us. So that really came about because of my previous relationship of working with him on Battle of Los Angeles, which was the sci-fi channel version of that whole story. And then uh, Awaken.
That was music from the original motion picture score to the 2016 film Planet of the Sharks, composed by my guest today, Brian Ranston, and co-composed by Kay's Alatratsky, with whom, Brian, you have collaborated with on a number of scores over the years. You know, Kay's and I have simply just been friends for years, just meeting each other through the community and just liking each other and hanging out. And Kays is from Italy, raised though in Florida. He made his way out here many years ago to pursue this as well. And again, he called me on that first movie, Battle of Los Angeles, asking me if I would come in and help him. And we would just kind of score it together. And his cues would be credited to him and my cues would be credited to me on the cue sheet. And and I said, sure, why not? And we split the fee down the middle and it was a good experience. And I think There are some technical things we do to try to make that easy. We usually pick a key to write in. So if if I write a cue in a certain key and he writes another cue, it's completely different. But if it's in the same key, they can kind of butt up next to each other and and it's not going to feel so foreign. Um, We do share samples. Well, I don't want to say share samples. We do use similar samples. So he owns pretty much everything I own. We all pretty much own all sample libraries. And sci-fi channel movies tend to be sample library-based movies. So say, okay, what what string library are you using? What synth are you using? Well, what patch on this Omnisphere synth are you using for this or that? And we'll use the same patches or the same sounds so that there's some cohesion in, in the palette of, of sounds that we do. We use Google Docs and Google Sheets to coordinate our cue sheets, and we lay all the cues out that have been spotted that we have to do. And if we have everything in the cloud, then when I complete a queue, I can cross it off the checklist and color code it differently and say when it's done. And, and so I, I immediately know what he's working on and he knows what I'm working on and what's finished and what's done. And then we just share files with Dropbox and it seems to work. We've found a way to make it work. So When you collaborate on the score, do you use each other's themes? To create uh, continuity. Yeah, it was absolutely. There's a theme that he wrote in the film Awaken that um, was really his theme, and I decided to take that and further arrange it and develop it throughout in some of my cues. And there are, in Planet of the Sharks, it was pretty much the opposite. That's a film that I kind of took the lead on. He was working on another project, so a good, most all of Planet of the Sharks is mine. But I decided I really wanted to stamp the shark with a sound and with a theme, you know, I used a slapperoo instrument, which is a unique instrument. If you go on YouTube and look up slapperoo or slapstick, you'll find this instrument that I used. That gave kind of the shark a sound. I ran it through some guitar processing and created a distorted metallic-y sound with it. And he did not have a slapperoo, so if there's a slapperoo in the score, you know, it was a cue that I was doing. But definitely, he took some of my themes in Planet of Sharks and integrated them into his cues. But we have yet to do a cue together. We kind of let, like, if it's my cue, it's 100% my cue. It might be influenced by something he does, but we have yet to really co-score a cue. I think that's why it's been easy thus far, is we haven't gotten into that complicated who's doing what. (laughs) So on a cue, so... Tell us about your work on the 2012 film Crooked Arrows, which was highly praised by film critics at the time. Well, I, first of all, I got introduced to its producer, J. Todd Harris, through a casting director friend of mine who went to high school with him or something. It's like, so that's another relationship story there. It was a film that I felt I could really resonate with in terms of you know the underdog sports movie. It was a very much like Rudy, very much like The Mighty Ducks, you know, but this was a game of lacrosse. 
So I had an idea without reading the script, without seeing any footage, I had an idea of what the theme could be. Lacrosse is a Native American sport, and this movie was going a little bit back into the history of where that sport came from and then telling a modern-day story about the sport. So I wrote a theme, and I wrote a little suite of music that was just out of my own imagination of what that would be like. And I got it to the producer, and he got it to their music supervisor, and they loved it and they got it to the director Steve Rash and he loved it and you know that is the main theme of the movie something that I wrote not reading a script not looking at the movie or anything that main theme is the theme that stuck in that movie it was an amazing experience I mean Steve Rash had done Buddy Holly story back in the late 70s and a couple of the American Pie movies and you know, they were really fun movies, but he did not really have an established composer relationship later in his career. I mean, he hasn't done a whole lot recently, but it was definitely somebody that I wanted to work with. And the more I got to know Steve, I learned that Steve himself was a euphonium player. Steve played in a brass instrument in college. So he was actually the kind of director that could look at my score and understand what I wrote. I mean, he really appreciated the music of it because he was a musician himself. So working on that project, he really understood how to work with the composer and how to give us a little bit of space and a little bit of opportunity to kind of explore things and work on things. And then he would make suggestions to kind of reel it back in. He, he liked to simplify a lot. I don't think we originally intended to have live orchestra on that film. And if I recall, the budget really didn't support that. And I made the argument. I said, look, you've got a film here that is a underdog sports movie. One of the co-production companies was Sports Studio in Los Angeles. If there's a movie about sports, Sports Studio is probably a co-production company of it. They are hired not only to, to provide the coaching and make the unique uniforms and handle all the aspects of the sport to promote sports in movies – but they also come to the plate with money and are co-producers. So films like Rudy and the, the Mighty Ducks and Miracle and all these other things were co-productions of Sports Studio. And there was not one film on Sports Studio's past that had a MIDI synthesized score. I mean, we're, we're talking, you know, Jerry Goldsmith's Rudy and Mark Isham's Miracle and all these amazing films that they had involvement in. And I said, look, we have the opportunity here to really do something special, and I think we can do it for not that much money because it was a lower-budget film. It was under $10 million, and we could do it on a union contract that was a little bit cheaper because the film contract, the film budget was not that expensive. And um, they actually came to the plate and found more money and found the money for our orchestra. We recorded that in Los Angeles on union contract in Los Angeles. And when I got up there on the stage on the day we recorded the score – and began to explain to the musicians what this film was about, and, you know, lacrosse movie. And I said, it's kind of like Rudy meets the Mighty Ducks, but for lacrosse. All of my brass players said, oh, well, we were all on Rudy. We got this. Okay, this is good. So, I mean, we had the same brass section that, that Jerry had on Rudy. I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing. And so, yeah, it, it was a lot of great fun.
That was music from the 2012 film Crooked Arrows, directed by Steve Rash and starring Brandon Ralph and Gil Birmingham, with music composed and conducted by Brian Ranston. And at this point, we have now come to the end of part one of my interview with Brian Ranston. I do hope you've enjoyed what you've heard so far. Join us again soon for part two of my interview. Until then, from me, Jason Drury, is take care and happy listening. Thank you for listening to Cinematic Sound Radio. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please email us at cinematicsound at yahoo.com. Don't forget to check us out at cinematicsound.net on the web, Sound Radio on Twitter, and Cinematic Sound on Facebook. And if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, please take a moment right now to rate and review the show. It really helps get the show noticed. And don't forget to tell all your friends about the program as well. We really appreciate the support. And please check out our affiliate at... Movie Scores and More Radio at MovieScoreRadio.com. <laughs>